0: The resurrection of Jesus is the most important, most monumental, most amazing, most phenomenal event in the history of the universe. And and there's really no way to overstate this. The significance of what we're singing about today and the scriptures we're reading today, that the connection that we have with believers all over the planet today who are declaring the beauty and the power of the risen Lord in harmony with all those saints who've gone on before us. This is the most important thing that's ever happened. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the entire bottom drops out of Christianity. If there's no resurrection, there is no true Christian religion. There are religious people and there are people doing religious things and those things would be man-made, superficial, and ultimately fruitless and futile. Without the resurrection, there are no true Christians. Because to be a Christian is not simply to believe certain things to be true, or to live according to certain codes or values or moral standards. But to be a Christian is to be truly born again, to be given new life, to have a resurrected life, to be taken from death to life. This is what Christianity is. The resurrection of Jesus is not only the most important thing that's ever happened to us, it's the most important thing that's ever happened, period. And the resurrection of Jesus is something that's rooted in historical veracity. When we talk about the resurrection, we're not talking about an idea, we're not talking about a philosophy, we're not talking about a feeling that we would respond to simply emotionally. We're talking about something that took place in time and history. Lee Strobel wrote this. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested event in the entire ancient world. More so than anything that ever took place And the early church. Declared the resurrection of Jesus again and again. It was the beating heart of the church. It's what gave them life. It's what pulsated that life to every people and place where the gospel went out. It was the story, the testimonies of many eyewitnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, who was crucified, yet lives. The Apostle Paul called it the most important thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 He wrote in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then the twelve, the disciples. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, many of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You see, everyone knew that Jesus was dead. I mean, this was not contested. I mean, this was clear from the the top down, from the Roman governor who okayed the execution of Jesus to the Roman soldiers who carried it out, to the women who prepared his body for burial and then watched him be taken away. Everyone knew clearly Jesus was dead. And those who feared that there might be some conspiracy ensuing afterwards, that somehow his early followers would somehow create something out of nothing to try to generate some new religious movement. No, everyone knew he was dead. And that's why when they tried to explain the empty tomb, they didn't do it by saying, well, he didn't really die. Everyone knew that he did. The evidence was overwhelming. But instead, they concocted this, this false rumor. The disciples must have stolen the body. But that never worked. It never took hold. No one believed it then and no one believes it now. These men, most of whom, almost all of whom, would go on to give their lives in brutal ways as martyrs, prove a point seen again and again in history no one is willing to die for something they made up. Something they don't believe to be true. Something they know is not so. The disciples were ablaze with boldness after the resurrection of Christ. These men who had hidden themselves away, these men who would quieted their voices, these men who in some cases had denied Jesus, even knowing him to the point of swearing their very lives against that fact, were now speaking truth, powerful gospel truth, even under the threat of their own life. Particularly Peter, who stood there on the steps, the southern steps of the temple, declaring to this crowd, this same crowd, many of whom would have been present, even calling for the death of Jesus not so many days before, saying, this Jesus that you crucified, he's Savior and Lord, he's he's alive. They knew the body was not in the the tomb. Otherwise, those adversaries of Jesus would simply have come up with the remains, and they would have produced them for everyone to see. They're declaring to you that he's alive, but here we can show you that he's dead, but they could not, they did not. Others would lose their lives, the evangelist Stephen, the apostle James, In addition to those that would sacrifice themselves for this, that they knew to be true, that they'd seen with their own eyes, in some cases touched with their own hands, there were many others. For 40 days, Jesus was appearing. You saw that in that statement I just read to you in 1 Corinthians 15. Four different times, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. We saw him. And Paul even goes to give the additional evidence. Many of these that saw him at the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, sometime in the first four or five centuries, or the first four or five decades of the church, he said, if you don't believe Jesus is alive, ask them. They were there. They saw it. Most of those folks that saw Jesus were not gullible. They were not dim-witted. In fact, the Scriptures record how hard some of them were to convince including even the disciples who were prepped for this, who had been told this, who even the night before his crucifixion had been given all the indicators of life to come. Luke 24, 11 records when the women reported the resurrection to the disciples, this was their reaction. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And of course, you're familiar with Thomas, infamously known as the doubting disciple. What did he say? In John 20, 25, "...unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe." Soon Jesus would invite him to do just that. Not a spirit, not an apparition, a physical body that you could talk to, a person that you could have a meal with, a person that was there physically present. Tom Anderson, former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association, wrote this. He says, with an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, even one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? Wouldn't there be at least one? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. But our point in gathering today is not just history. We didn't come to memorialize Jesus. We came to worship him. And the truth is this, the resurrection is far more than ancient history. And it is true, as we have sung and said, as we have read and heard, it is true that the tomb is empty, but it is equally true that the throne is not. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I don't want to simply talk to you about the Jesus that was. Nor do I simply want to spend more time talking about all that Jesus did. I want to talk to you about the Jesus who is. Not simply who was, but the one who is and the one who is to come. You see, after the resurrection and Jesus spent those 40 days teaching about the kingdom, the future kingdom, the future rule and reign of God, the Bible says then he was taken up into heaven. Now, obviously... And I hope it goes without saying, though I won't leave it unsaid. It's absolutely essential to what we call the gospel, the good news of what God has offered us in Christ, that we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. He faced every sort of temptation, but he never sinned for our sake. He fought sin and temptation for us and for the glory of the Father, that he was crucified not for his own sins, not for his own crimes, but for ours. He was our sacrifice And as a sinless sacrifice, perfect and spotless, he was acceptable by God. But he didn't simply die for us. Again, this is not a memorial. We're not recognizing the great martyrdom of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. He was raised to life. God received that sacrifice. God returned him to us. He vindicated his death. And he validated every promise that God had ever made in Christ for us. He's alive. And in so doing, he offers us life. But it's not just the life and the death and the resurrection that are critical to the gospel. It's all those appearances. So many saw him, so many evidences and his ascension. Where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father where now he is interceding for us. Where now he's our great high priest. Where now he is ruling and reigning on the throne. He is installed now as the true king of the world. The Apostles' Creed, which dates all the way back in its roots to the 3rd century, declares he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And every Christian since the time of Christ has believed this. But it's not just that he ascended to the throne, nor is it simply what he does while he sits on the throne, ever interceding for us, saving us to the uttermost. It's the promise that one day this king, Will return to this earth. And he will be undeniable in his power and in his glory. He will not come hidden nor cloaked in frail humanity, but he will come unveiled in all of his glory so that every eye will see him. Every person will behold him. Every knee will bow before him. And he will establish his kingdom forever and ever. And this is exactly what every Christian has prayed since the time of Christ when we repeat the Lord's Prayer Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So today I want to challenge you not just simply to look back and say, I'm Christian because I believe these things once happened. Though I want you to believe they're true. I want you to have more than an appreciation for all that God has done for us in Christ. I want to call on you to renew your commitment to Christ if you're a Christian now, because he is the ruling, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority is his today And one day He's going to return and everything will be centered on Him. Every eye focused on Him. Every part of our life will be evaluated according to Him. How we have lived, what we have done as we've longed for His appearing. It's all about the living Christ. And if you're not a Christian today, I want to go beyond introducing you to the greatest figure in history. I want want to introduce you today to the one who lives and reigns and invites you into a relationship with Him. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank You so much for the testimony of the saints in glory who saw the risen Lord. I thank You for the witness of Your Holy Spirit inspiring the words of Scripture that repeat again and again this is of most importance. Christ lived, died, was buried, and was raised, and we saw him, and he ascended, and he will return. Father, I thank you for the undying desire and prayer of every Christian since the ascension of Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for your appearing. Father, I thank you for the hope that is here in these words. I thank you for the life-changing power of the resurrection. I thank you for the salvation that is so great that we dare not ignore it. We can't deny it. And I pray that every person in earshot of what I say would embrace it, believe it, experience it, and enjoy it forever. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our risen Lord and our coming King. In his name I pray. Amen. I want you to open your Bible this morning, if you have one with you, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. And I want to share with you some simple thoughts, some simple notes in the form of a prayer this morning. I think the most profound prayer that anyone in Scripture ever prayed, apart from Jesus himself, is recorded in Ephesians chapter 1. And it is so all encompassing. It's so wide and broad and and so deep and rich in what God's Spirit led Paul to pray for these fairly novice Christians in the city of Ephesus. And because it's in Scripture, it's not just to them, it's also for us. I think this prayer is for us as well. And I want to take the words of this text and form it into a prayer that I have for everyone in this room and everyone who'd hear what I have to say today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Seven things that I'm praying for you today. Seven things I'm praying for us all today. And, and let me begin here. It was kind of interesting the way that sort of Easter fits functionally in, in the Christian year. You know, for us, in the church year, Easter is sort of like sort of like a New Year's Day. It's sort of like that day of a fresh start, a new beginning. Uh, maybe. Maybe some of you haven't been with us in a while. Maybe someone invited you today to come. You hadn't been in any church in a while. Or maybe, just maybe, you've never been at all, and this is something brand new to you. And at the very least, if that's you, I hope you can deduce from the experience you've had so far that the people in this room who know Christ know Him, and they love Him. And we believe what we're saying, and we mean what we're singing. And we will stake our lives on this. This is our life. Now, this is our hope forever. This is who we are. This is not just one part of us. This is not just something that's sprinkled on top of us or some part of the description of us. This is who we are because of Christ. And we want more than anything else that you would be that also. So it's this sort of new year in the Christian year, new day, new beginning. It's an opportunity for a fresh start. And so let me begin with anyone who may be listening that's not a christian yet now let me say this first but before i share with you this prayer thought you may know right now as you sit in this room that you're not a christian i think most people do they know if they've ever believed this to be true they know if they've ever staked their life on this they know if they they stood before god they wouldn't know what to say if god said why should i let you into heaven They they know that they're not. They know they haven't believed these things. I pray that today, if that's you, you will believe, that God will open your eyes and your heart and your mind to see and understand and desire things you'd never have before. and You'd become a child of God. A harder group to reach sometimes are those who think they are Christian but aren't. Those who believe that maybe by saying a prayer, filling out a card, doing some simple act, maybe showing up here and there. Well, that's what made me a Christian, right? But there's no life there. There's no presence of the Spirit of God there. There's no evidence of a passion for the things of God and for the things of eternity. It's just not there. And you or you along with us, as we've aided and abetted, have deceived yourself. I pray that the same would be true of you, that God would open your eyes to see what you've never seen, and your ears to hear what you've never heard, and your heart to want what you've never wanted before, and God would bring new life there to you, and break that stranglehold of self-deception, or even a community deception, and today would be a new life for you. And I pray for you as as Christians as well, that today would be a start of new commitment. But let's start with those of you who aren't Christians yet. Here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that you would recognize and receive the incredible gift of God's salvation described in these terms, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, purpose, and glory, and these things which only come through faith in Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come. I know that's a huge statement. It's a wide-ranging synopsis of what we get when we're saved, and I want that for you. I want you to know this great salvation that God has given. Let me describe it in the terms of Scripture. You're already in the passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Move up several verses to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Let's pause there for a moment. God's desire to to make us who were His enemies, whether through unbelief or ignorance or opposition and defiance, outside of the family of God, to take those who are strangers, aliens, and enemies, and make them sons or daughters. One of the sweetest statements of the gospel is that he chooses us as his own family. He wants to adopt you into his family. He doesn't want to treat you as your sins deserve. He doesn't want to judge you on that final day as his enemy. But he wants to bless you like his own son or daughter and give you the inheritance of hope and glory. It's adoption. He predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood. The Bible says that sin makes us slaves to it. With the irony of our own sinful conditions, we sold ourselves into that slavery. It wasn't done to us, it was done by us. God, saved, God calls us to a life of salvation and freedom to know Him and love Him, but we chose something else. The first people did it, and every person since has from the time of Adam and Eve. And that sin, that willful disobedience, that disregard for what God has said, to not live as God is King, puts us into slavery. And He says, I want to redeem you. I want to buy you out of that. How does He do that? Through his blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. One of the great gifts of our salvation is that we're forgiven. That's the ultimate separation between those who know Christ and those who don't, those who are on the family side of God in judgment, and those who are on the enemy side. The difference is not that we're so much better. Hopefully, we're living different than we used to, but the critical difference is that we're forgiven. That our sins for the forgiven have been punished already in Christ. For the unforgiven, those sins are yet to be punished and will be so for all eternity. Forgiveness. According to the riches of his, of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Purpose. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants to know what am I here for? What's life really all about? Is this life worth living? You get to certain stages of life and different periods of life, and you evaluate that question and answer it differently. What is my life counted for? Was my life going to count for? What really matters? What's worth giving my life for? And those answers can only truly be answered in Christ, that God saved you for His purpose, to know and do and enjoy His will. Purpose is one of the gifts of the, of the gospel. And then glory. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. God save you that you might know Him and enjoy Him forever and ever and ever and ever. And I pray that if you're not a Christian yet, you would recognize and receive those incredible gifts. That all comes through faith. God, I believe that this is true. And a humble reception, God save me. God, do those things for me. Make me your son or daughter. Take me out of this sinful condition. Forgive me of my sins. Guide and direct my life. Take me to be with you in glory. Number two, if you're a Christian, let's shift gears for a moment. If you're a Christian, because I'm going to guess, I'm going to speculate that the vast majority of people in this room are. If you're a Christian, I pray that you would desire to know God better and Deeper and more passionately, and more personally than you ever have before. And because you have that desire, you would commit yourself to a lifelong pursuit of the knowledge of God. This statement is so profound that he prayed. We get to verse 16 in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's addressing Christians. He's addressing believers. He's addressing those who've received the gift of salvation. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened." Not that you're not saved already. Not that you don't believe these things to be true that we've sung and said and read. But that you would see it more and better. That you see it more clearly and more deeply. That it would be more powerful to you and its effect on your life and be more personal to you. Not theoretical, hypothetical, just merely theological. But this would be so personal and passionate to you that you would know Him. You ever stop and think, how much time and effort you have expended in your life to accumulate knowledge about things that don't really matter that much? You ever thought about that? We'll be driving down the road. song will come on. I'll start singing the words. Cecilia would say, how do you know the words of that song? Now, this only this is a certain period of time. It's only like from the late 60s to the late 80s. That's the window. After that, I don't really... How do you know these songs? I don't know. They're just in my head. And you'd be the same if I pulled up some vintage commercials. You'd be repeating them. For some of you, you can tell me lineups, scoring plays, critical, decisive coaching moments for your favorite team or sport. you got all this information and data. And I'm not saying everything that you know is not important and everything that's not Christian knowledge or knowledge of God is unimportant knowledge. No, I think knowledge is important. You need to know how to do your job. You need to know how to function in real life. But how much time have we expended on things that don't matter nearly as much as our knowledge of the most important being in existence? And how much regret might we have one day that we didn't spend more time getting to know God? How much knowledge do you have, information you have stored away that's not life-changing? It's just mind-cluttering. Knowing God. I mean, to really know God. Not just know facts about God, but to engage in His Word and to think about it and ponder it. To meditate on it. To prayerfully seek the knowledge of God. And in knowing by walking with Him and being obedient to Him, this is what energizes the soul of a believer. This is what gives you that fuel to want to live in a way that honors and pleases Him. This is what elevates your thoughts to things beyond the mundane of this world, and sometimes the despairing thoughts of this world. I want to put my thoughts on something better and higher. This is what deepens my trust in God. We talk about this so much as we're pursuing theology as a church more and more, not just so we would be smarter, but so that we would be more trusting, so we'd be better sons and daughters. And the knowledge of God is what emboldens our courage We have to face a a culture that is resistant to Christ and increasingly not just resistant, but antagonistic towards Christ. And if the enemy can constantly be diminishing in our thinking the value of Christ, distracting us so that our thoughts are always placed on things other than Christ, as Christ becomes less weighty to us, the pressures of this world seem even more intense. This is why we need to know him, and to spend your lifetime doing that. Number three, I pray this. I pray that the hope that we've been promised in Christ and the hope you've been promised in Christ will give you assurance and confidence and joy in the Lord, not just today, but every day until you die. And I put the word hope there with an asterisk beside it just to make sure that we're clear again. If you were here with us last week, you heard me speak to this point. Hope is not something that we wonder if it might happen, even though we want it to. We can't be certain of it because it's a hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident assurance that what you deep down inside desire most will happen. What's your confident assurance? Where do you get yours? When everything else seems very shaky, when everything else seems to be falling apart, When you can't be sure of much of anything else, what is the ground of assurance for a Christian? What is the sure and certain hope that a Christian has? Look up just a few verses above where we just read. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so when the, when the truth of God's love for you, your, your great need for God because of sin, God's great offer of salvation to you through the death and resurrection of Christ, when you heard the truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and you believed in Him, look what happened to you. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is the guarantee of your salvation? Your persistent, unfailing faithfulness over the rest of your life? No. The absence of any doubt or question marks for the rest of your life? No. The the persistent, consistent attendance in a church service? No. What is the sure and certain assurance that you have? That God put His Spirit in you? He marked you as His and He sealed you. It's done. It's a closed deal. You're His. You're already, even though you're sitting here if you're a Christian, you're already seated with Him in the heavenlies. Think about that for a moment. Your reservation's are already there if you're His. You're sealed with Him. And not only that, it says the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. He's the steward, and He's put the blessings of eternity in trust for you. If you have a a fund, perhaps, that you set aside for your sons or daughters. He says, I want them to have this one day, but if I gave this to them now, well, they'd be idiots with it, and then it'd all be lost. God says the Holy Spirit is trusted to guard over the promised inheritance that's yours. And right now, you know with certainty, not with wishful thinking, that everything God has promised will be yes to you in Christ, And you'll get it all in eternity. And I pray that that hope, that confident assurance, would give you joy in the Lord till you die. Because this inheritance cannot spoil. It cannot fade. It cannot be taken from you. It's kept for you by Him. And number four, as you think about this inheritance that we've been granted in Christ, that the worth of your inheritance would so outweigh, and, and listen to the depth of this statement. That the worth of your inheritance in Christ would so far outweigh your estimation of and your desire for earthly things that those things could no longer even compare anymore. And as a result, you would begin to consciously live for Christ and his reward. That you would get a sense of how generous is God, how vast is his promise, how great is the wealth he gives to those who are his that you would stop even thinking there's anything in this world worth living your life for better than that. That everything else would begin to pale. In fact, that's what I wrote originally in my notes. That The stuff of this world would pale in comparison to the glory of Christ. But then I thought, no, it shouldn't even be compared. There is, there is no comparison. John wrote in 1 John 2.15 that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What did he know that we don't? What what did he know that so many Christians still don't seem to get? Love for this world and the stuff of this world invariably pushes out love for the Father. They don't compete because they don't coexist. Part of the mark of a believer who's totally convinced of the resurrection of Christ and changed from the inside out by the power of the resurrection of Christ, is that we're living for something bigger. Two verses later, John writes, this world will pass away and all the lusts of it. He's trying to appeal to your thinking here if if he hasn't hit your feelings yet. If your desires still want this stuff, there's so much stuff you're living for, and you think your life will never be complete if you don't have it. If it hasn't hit your heart yet, the desire spot then let it at least hit your head that this stuff is going to pass away. All the stuff of this world is going to pass away. Do you really want to live for something that won't last? Or do you want to live for the reward of heaven? You see, I think particularly for Christians, and this is who I'm aiming this statement at, Satan is far too clever to develop a strategy to try to cause you to loathe God, because it's not going to happen. A Christian will never loathe God. His strategy instead more often is to make us love things that are worth so much less than him. Is that you today? I pray that the worth of your inheritance would settle on you and you would live for the things of heaven. Number five. And these are not ordered by number of value or importance. Because I guess if they were, I would have elevated this one to the top. I pray that if you're a Christian, you would experience the might of his resurrection power. The sort of power. In fact, the Bible says the same sort of power. The mighty working of God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. The sort of power that can change any wayward or broken thinking. So much of what's wrong in our lives is we don't think right. Our heads aren't in the right place. We don't believe the right things. It's either confusion or things we don't know or things we think wrongly or poorly. So life change starts here in what I understand and do. Jewish culture would say it's, it starts in the heart, but we know the heart simply pumps blood. When we say, you know, you've got to feel it with your heart, we're really talking about a center that's here between the ears. I pray that it would change broken thinking, overcome hang-ups and habits, addictions, hurts, pains, that the power of God would work in your life in such a way to genuinely make you a new creation. Let me say something that sounds harsh. It's it's so harsh, I actually took it out of my notes, but it stayed in my head. Here's my fear. I won't say it's my judgment, but it is my concern. Those people who claim to be Christian, but there's no evidence of any supernatural power at work in their life, changing what they want, changing the way that they think, changing their ability to do the things that pleases God, or even making them want to, giving them the softness of heart that desires to repent, the clarity of thinking that enables them to believe. When there's no power there, I seriously question, and I wonder, and I'm concerned, can there really be any Christ there? Because this is not an option for Christians. This is a provision for Christians. This power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and me, we who believe. You see, the resurrection is not only for us the promise of an inheritance that we will obtain. It's the promise of a power that we're going to experience. Again, more than just truths you believe in, more than just values that you hold, more than just a creed that you live by, it's the power to be made new. I pray you would know that, that supernatural power, the power of a new life. What's the testimony of every single believer in this room? Every single one of us. The one part of our testimony that we all have in common if we're in Christ. Even if you think your testimony is not dynamic, not exciting, not worth standing up and sharing, here's your testimony. Death to life. Death to life. Every single new believer, that's the power of the resurrection, from death to life. Number six that you and I would be confident in and we would rest in what I would call the right here, right now sovereignty of God over all things. And as a result, we have no fear of what the future holds for us, for he reigns and will reign forever. I think sometimes when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we might understand it conceptually. God has power over everything. God is God and no one can thwart him. There is no God like him. There is no competitor to him. No one threatens his throne. There is not a single atom in the universe that he does not control. But I think we think of that sometimes in future tense terms. One of the beautiful truths of the resurrection is that Jesus now sits on the throne and the earth is his footstool today. It's the right here, right now. And that doesn't necessarily answer every question that you have about why this happens. Or why God allows this to happen. Or why these people do these things. Or why these things still go in check other than the mercy of God and the coming judgment of God. But that doesn't change this fact. He will not become sovereign one day. He is sovereign today. And though there's a lot to be concerned about in our world. A lot of things we have to be fighting for. If we're going to be faithful to the king, we've got to be faithful to live for the king and carry his banner into the battles that we face in this world today. But we do it with the confidence that he reigns so we don't have fear. We don't have fear. And whatever the future holds, we know he's in control. And let me say this just real quickly. Now my time is short. All done. When I make a statement like that, I don't say it lightly. I I want to know that my friends who are in India, who will be listening to this message, either live or watching it later, who are facing real persecution, some of whom have lost friends simply for believing in Christ and declaring the gospel, I want them to be able to say a hearty amen that that's true even for them. And I want my Christian brothers in Africa who will listen to this message or hear it later, who've got cousins and neighbors and friends who are living in the border areas, where the persecution is intense, where some of them will gather today, and maybe we will or won't read about it. And they'll gather today for worship, and they'll be attacked and killed simply for saying the name of Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want them to be able to hear it and say it's true. He's still in control. He's still sovereign, and we don't fear. Because we know this. What can this world do to me when I serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what can you take from me when dying is winning to see him forever and ever? That we would be confident and not just confident that he's in charge of things. Well, What's the active component for a believer who truly believes that Jesus is king? That you and I would willfully, joyfully, and consistently submit to that authority. It's not enough for us just to be confident God's got it. He's sitting on his throne. Tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. I trust that. No, if he's on the throne, do you see the staggering implications of that? How do I live as if, it's, as if he's not? How do I live as a king to myself? How do I live under so many inferior authorities? And finally... As I said a moment ago, there's something of a new start implicit, I think, in gathering on Easter. The day of new beginnings. The celebration of resurrection from death to life. Not just the one that was, but mine and yours as well. And the future resurrection that will be, because one day Jesus is going to return. first thing He's going to do is those who are dead in Him, He's going to raise. He's going to raise those to life and glory. He's going to raise the unbelieving dead to everlasting judgment. The Bible says that those who are alive will meet them and we'll all be together with them forever. This is a new beginning, though, in one very practical way that you may have underestimated. One way that I think we have tragically, with horrific consequences, ignored. That you would commit today or recommit being a vital, active, contributing part of his body. And when I say his body, you know I'm talking about the church and it's only visible, tangible expression is the local church. I think we get hung up on this point and I think we're deceived on it. When you became a Christian, yes, you did become part of the Universal Church, capital C, every true believer, born again by the Spirit of God, believing in Jesus Christ, awaiting the final resurrection, You became part of that universal church with all those who live and all those who have lived before us. But the only visible, tangible expression of that cosmic universal church and the way that the scriptures speak of the church is almost invariably the local church. It's people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that in it you would enjoy the benefits and you would exercise the responsibilities of authentic Christian living That cannot be had apart from the church. For time's sake, I can't go into the depth of this. This would open the door to a long series on ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. But let me just revisit the phrase we see in verse 22 at the end in verse 23. The church, which is his body, catch this statement, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus sits on a throne. It's a cosmic throne. It's over all, all the universe, everything that exists. And the embodiment of his authority, the earthly expression of his authority, the way that people would understand his authority and live in it and enjoy it until we all see him face to face is the right here, right now, local church. That's what God intended. The church Is God's instrument for the renewal of the world. But it's also God's chosen instrument for your personal renewal. And He doesn't work outside of His plan. The church is the embodiment of Christ, the Bible says. It's the essential, absolutely essential plan of God to make you like Christ, to be shaped into Christ. It's where you find your ultimate purpose. It's where you discover your mission. It's where you live for God's purposes in the world. And if you're cut off from a local body of believers, I'm not saying you're cut off from your salvation. And I'm not saying you're cut off from heaven. But I am saying you're cut off from the fullest expression of God's presence in the world now. You're cut off from the means by which God wants to bless your life now. You're cut off from the means of which God wants to reshape your life now you're cut off from the blessings and benefits of his body the bride of Christ now to renew your commitment to Christ in his church the fullness of him who fills everything here together with the one and others who believe with you most important part of any notes that you've taken today if you're a note taker and even if you're not it's this statement at the very bottom of the notes distributed to you in that worship folder. Two words and a long blank. Today, I. What does the Spirit of God want you to put on that page right there? What does your response need to be? I covered a lot of ground. Prayed seven big prayers for you. What does God want you to do today? Some of you, He's calling to faith today. He's calling to live a new life today. God's Spirit's regenerating so you have faith today and we will put that faith and trust in Him and be saved today. For some of you, He's calling back to Himself. For some of you, He's calling to a greater depth of commitment or the pursuit of knowing Him. But what is God saying for you today? That's what I want us to pray about right now. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray because You love us, I'm not being presumptuous about your love. You've made that abundantly clear. If there's anything in all this world we do not know well enough, it's how much, how thoroughly, how inexpressible is your love for us. But because you love for us, you love us like you do, and of your great love for us, your desire for our good far exceeds our own desires for our good. You love me more than I love me, and you love Us more than we love us. You love them more than they love them and every one of us. We have an enemy. We have a thief. He's a deceiver. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. But you are the one that gives life, life to the full. So Father, I believe that you're calling some to life today. I believe you're calling some to renewal today. You're calling some to repentance today. You're calling some to a a different focus of living today. You're calling some to some renewed hope and confidence today. You're calling some to some specific obedience today. You're calling some to be part of your church today. So God, I just leave this now with you. As I prayed earlier before anyone assembled today, Father, I pray that you would prevail. Your spirit would prevail. Your will would be done in each person here and that we would respond rightly to you. So, Father, in accordance with your word, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we can know you and what you've called us to. Father, I pray that we would obediently respond as we should. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.